0: So if you were here last week, we talked about suffering a good deal, um, and we use the term suffering because that is what the Bible uses, but trauma is a form of suffering, and it is a uh, very intense and personal form of suffering. And so we're going to dig into um, the science of trauma tonight, uh, we are going to um, hopefully understand the way that the body and the mind work and how they respond naturally to abnormal events. Um, but again, we would be remiss to not start and end with the person of Christ. And unbeknownst to, to Matt, um, this was the scripture that I wanted to start with. Um, because this is, during our 21 days of prayer, we're focusing on the three core values of Good Shepherd, and that is knowing Christ, wholeness in Christ, and then next week we'll emphasize making disciples by the Spirit of Christ, right? So tonight as we talk about trauma, which is brokenness, right, um, it's so appropriate that we talk about wholeness also. And so, again, the, the place that Christians start from is a place of victory, Amen? We already know the end of the book, right? Um, We already have an invitation to the wedding supper of the Lamb. We already have an invitation to spend eternity with Christ where there are no more tears and there is no more pain. And trauma is a distant memory, right? Because of the work of the cross, because Christ did the finished work. He paid the price for the healing of that suffering. And so if you're a believer tonight then even if you are still affected by trauma in your life, you do have ultimate victory over it, and that is your hope. And if you are not a believer tonight, the invitation from Christ to you is, if you're thirsty, drink of the living water. If you're hungry, he is the bread of life, okay? So praise God that we start with victory, but at the same time, we still grieve and we still groan with creation for the Lord to come and to throw off this mortal flesh and to put on our new bodies, right? And our old bodies have some dings and some dents and maybe some, some real deep pain. Um, but I think when we talk about wholeness, it's very important for us to understand the nature of our brokenness. Because if we're asking God to make us whole, I think a lot of times, for me anyway, when I pray something, I like to pray specifically, you know? I like to pray with the knowledge of what it is that I'm asking for, and I think if we're honest a lot of times with ourselves, um, when we pray about the things that are, that are breaking our heart or that we're grieving over, sometimes we don't necessarily have the words, and so I hope you'll have some words tonight after this session to understand what, you've, what maybe you've experienced and maybe how it's still affecting you, um, and so... As we look at a hu- the human body and as we look at the ways that trauma can, can break us down, there's two things I want you to take away from this tonight. If you're in Christ, this is a hopeful conversation because A, your healing is paid for, but also he made you and he can make you right, okay? And number two, I want, to, I want for you to understand that your reactions to trauma, even your behavior from trauma is very very normal. Those are normal reactions to abnormal events that happen to you, okay? So what I want to do first and foremost is remove the stigma of shame, right? You don't need shame on top of your trauma, right? Amen? So let's get started. So we need to understand trauma because it'll help us see ourselves and others and our experiences, even our sin through a trauma-informed lens. And we're going to come back to that statement next week. Because um, there's a lot to unpack there. Understanding trauma helps us understand the nature of our brokenness, our emptiness, and pray more specifically for his healing and for his wholeness. So that's our emphasis tonight in this week where we're looking at wholeness in Christ. So what is trauma? If you've ever been to the hospital after a, a, a bad car crash, you might have gone to a trauma center and it deals with you know, physical wounds of, a, of an egregious nature. But when we talk about trauma... We're not talking about those types of bodily wounds, although a car wreck that caused those types of bodily wounds can also be traumatic in the sense that we're talking about. So this is a clinical definition that's accepted. I'm just going to read it. Behavioral health professionals more broadly define trauma as resulting from an event series of events, a set of circumstances that is experienced by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful or life-threatening, and that has a lasting adverse effects on the individual's functioning and mental, physical, social, emotional, and spiritual well-being. From the onset, it needs to be clear to us that the traumatic events of our life affect us in every area of our life. And we're going to look at the science behind that, but it is important to go ahead and realize that. This is my definition, uh, just in more common vernacular. Trauma is a wound of the soul that occurs when an individual experiences an event or series of events so shocking, so violent, or so invasive that it overwhelms their normal coping mechanisms. Trauma is the Greek word for wound. Literally, mental trauma is a wound of the soul. That's important, a wound of the soul. And it is in the realm of the soul that trauma embeds and destroys Trauma affects the way a person feels about themselves, others, and often God. Many times, these are unconscious shifts that result from a traumatized person entering survival mode or dissociating altogether to continue living with so great a wound. And we're going to come back to dissociation and coping mechanisms. But if you had a physical wound, if you had a gaping wound on your body, like... Ava was walking around with like a, like a limb missing or something and blood. just. We'd be like, Ava, you should probably get that scene about. But if somebody has a soul wound, we don't even know. They're walking around and everything that they touch and every word that somebody said hurts, right? They're walking around with a giant real wound and nobody even sees it. I said it several times last week. We've said it over and over again in conversations Matt and I have had and Jonathan and I have had The pastors and the elders of this church want Good Shepherd to be a safe place for people to talk about their trauma, to sit in the pain of their trauma, to lament their trauma, to heal from their trauma. This is a safe place for you to do that. 60% 60 of men and 50% of women experience a major trauma in their life. Children are especially vulnerable to long-term ill effects of traumatic experience, and childhood trauma is a major predictor of substance abuse and mental illness." And we're going to come back to uh, especially those bottom two statements. So I don't know if you can see this. So these are common reactions to, to trauma, and they're split into emotional on the left and physical on the right. And so when we look at these, we see confusion and anger and fear and anxiety and depression. And you know what? A lot of people experience those every day, and a lot of times our first response to them may not necessarily be, oh, they might have underlying trauma, right? It can look a lot of different ways. That's why when you go to the hospital and the doctors treat your symptoms, you never get better. If you just treat those symptoms, if you just treat your anxiety with anxiety medication, it doesn't deal with your trauma. That's not an anxiety medication uh, statement. That is just saying what is causing you anxiety might be underlying trauma, right? Fatigue, muscle tension, headaches, chest pain. uh, That's just called going to work and working in retail, right? No. But the reality is we can look at those statements and we can think, yeah, that's my life. But also when you've experienced trauma and it's unresolved, it can present itself physically in these ways and many other ways. So when we talk about trauma, there are three uh, basic groups that they kind of group them into um, and every type of configuration uh, in between. But we talk about acute trauma, chronic trauma, and complex trauma. Acute trauma is like a flashpoint incident, right? Like your house burns down, right? Um, or you get in a horrible car wreck and you think that you are uh, that you were going to die. Or maybe you have a shocking, sudden loss of someone that you love dearly. Or maybe it's—I mean, it, 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 literally, it can be uh, the, the 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 tragic, shocking end of a long-term relationship. It can be uh, it, it can be um, a, a terminal—you um, know—it it can be going to the doctor for a headache and getting a you know, terminal diagnosis, right? Um, That's one single event. Chronic is when it's repeated and prolonged, such as domestic violence or abuse. And complex trauma would then be an exposure to multiple traumatic events, um, which are often of an invasive and personal nature. So what makes a stressful event toxic or traumatic? And there, we're going to look at, uh, I think, like five different things. Um, But these are important because... Trauma is as much about perspective as anything else, and that might sound kind of weird. That doesn't mean necessarily that it's relative the way that it affects the body, but I'm going to give you a really simple simple, uh, scenario that I often use because it's it's easy and it's not painful. Um, There's a mom holding, holding a child, and they're walking through a field, and all of a sudden this big dog is running towards them, and the child is like, oh, my gosh. We're about to get eaten by that big dog. And mom is smiling and just walking towards the dog. And the child is like, mom, you're going the wrong direction. We should be running from this dog. This dog is about to devour us. And mom is just thinking, I know this dog. This dog is safe. Child is thinking, I don't know this dog. I'm about to die, right? And so the child is starting to have heart rate goes up, starting to get sweats, starting to hyperventilate. And mom is just smiling and walking peacefully towards the dog. Dog comes up, and the kid literally, like, face goes white, like, feels like he's about to die, and the dog licks him to death, right? The child then grows up with this irrational fear of dogs, is what people call it, but it's a rational fear of dogs because his body perceived the danger in reality, and he thought he was going to die. And so his body reacted the same way as if that dog was actually running towards him and gonna attack him. So that means two people can experience the same event. One felt like their life was threatened and the other person felt safe. And one can be traumatized by it and the other, it can be a distant memory. So we're gonna look at that. So the degree that we have control over the event will make, can make an event you know, much more traumatic to us. Think about a child. A child has no agency, they have no power. So if someone in authority does something to them, then they have no control over that event, and it can make that event especially traumatic for them. Helplessness is a feeling that almost all human beings try to avoid. The degree of vulnerability we feel in situations over which we have no influence or power is often overwhelming. This is especially true when we also feel fear. Feeling afraid and helpless at the same time is traumatic for most individuals. That phrase, fear and helplessness, is huge when we're talking about trauma because it doesn't just have to mean you thought you were gonna die, right? I can think of emotional situations where I have felt fear and helplessness, right? And they can be just as intense. The novelty of event. Again, if you have no prior experience, right? So it, a, a fireman who, who's used to running into burning buildings and pushing past his reflex to run the other direction like his body is not perceiving it the same way the first the guy that runs into his first fire that guy that runs into his first fire he doesn't know if he's coming out right he's afraid for his life the guy that's been doing it his whole life it's no longer a novel event he's used to it right it's not going to traumatize him the same way the lack of in- internal or external resources so this is about resilience, right? Like if you have had a, a secure relationship with your primary caregivers, if you've had a secure life, if you've grown up healthy, if you've grown up with the agency of having some money, if you haven't spent your life, you know, in fear of not having enough, if you have, if you have had um, even you know solid spiritual foundation, right? These are things that give you resilience. But on the other side, if you haven't had those things, if you've grown up Deeply impoverished and not knowing if you're going to have a meal that evening. If you've grown up with chronic sickness, if you've grown up um, maybe being part of a minority class that has always been repressed, or maybe in another nation where you're a woman and you have no agency at all, you're a second class citizen, those things can cause you to be less resilient. The degree of brute evil inherent in the event. Witnessing the effects of mass destruction and loss of life, seeing or handling dead bodies, being taken hostage, suffering sexual assault, dealing with blatant corruption and greed are all examples of events and experiences that will be traumatic to most people. The more evil something is, I think the more traumatic it is, because there's also that element of how could this be happening, and that makes it more shocking, right? And I know I'm going fast, but... I want to cover a lot because we need to have a, a comprehensive picture of what trauma is before we can go forward. So the presence of pre-existing risk factors is another reason why trauma may uh, affect you more greatly. And so when we, when, a lot of times when we're dealing with kids in the foster system or kids, my wife and I are, are members of CASA, and Naomi um, Strawhorn is a member of CASA, a lot of times we talk about ACE. Um, ACE scores and that 's adverse childhood experiences right and we 're going to go over a few of those in a second, but if you have a high ACE score you 're going to be more predisposed to having, a, having an event be more traumatic to you if you are already under a heavy stress load, toxic stress can build up in you, and it can your body can, your mind will perceive long term toxic stress almost the same way it does as trauma because your your, your body is going to stay in an elevated state of of hypervigilance, you're gonna have stress. Um talking to a brother today and he was talking about a season of work where he was just going, 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 and then he took a day off. And that whole first day he was just kind of jittery, you know? And he's like, he needs to rest, but what's happening? His body is still full of the adrenaline and the cortisol and everything else that he needs to get stuff done, but he needs to rest, right? And so it's like if you're already under a high stress load, then something else, it's kinda of like the straw that broke this camel's back, right? Estrangement from community. This is so important. I mean, it's easy to see with children, if you have a child that goes through a traumatic event and they're holding on to their mother's hand, it's gonna affect them a lot less than that child that doesn't know where their primary caregiver is. But if you're in a community of people and you feel safe, then that event is gonna have less of a traumatic effect on you because it's gonna be less, you're gonna feel less danger because there is gonna be some sense of safety being in a group of people. So when we talk about ACE, the adverse childhood experiences, those are traumatic events that occur during childhood, 0 to 17, and they have a lasting negative effect on health, well-being, and opportunity. So they give 10 ACEs, and we'll we'll look at those. Um, There could be more. This isn't a comprehensive list. and then they divide them into these three categories. So we have abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction. One of the things that we learned um, as we have have gone through a lot of classes with CASA, which is a Court court Appointed um, Child Advocates, um, that emotional neglect is is just as traumatizing as anything else that a child could experience. The way that it rewires the brain. So as a child, if you've experienced physical abuse, from someone you trusted, from an authority figure, if you've gone through emotional abuse, especially long-term, if there's been sexual abuse, if you've had physical neglect where, you didn't, where they didn't feed you, maybe they didn't show you any tenderness at all, maybe there wasn't any touch, maybe they, maybe they abused you um, emotionally or just never spoke to you, maybe there was never any affection verbally, um, or, or if someone in your household, someone close to you had mental illness, was incarcerated, um, maybe, your, maybe your dad was abusing your mom, or your mom was abusing your dad, maybe there was substance abuse in the household, or maybe divorce, or maybe there was a death in the family, maybe one of your parents died, or one of your siblings died, or someone close to you. These things will make you more susceptible to an event being traumatic. And the, and the, and the, the long-term studies of these things show some shocking rates. Um, and so this is, this is the way that those high A scores, those, those traumatic events as a child can, can affect an adult and do affect an, an adult. And I mean, abusing tobacco, abusing alcohol, abusing drugs, um, just poor overall health, um, stroke, early strokes, cancer, heart disease. These are all, this is, these are all have been mapped. There's been study after study after study, and these are mappable Individuals with a five on that ACE score, if if five of those things have happened to you, then you are six to ten times more likely to use and abuse drugs and alcohol. Six to ten times more. Individuals with a six on the ACE scale are 46 times more likely to use IV drugs. There is a direct correlation between trauma and all types of sickness, all types of mental illness, and all types of abuse, drug abuse, chemical abuse. And there's a lot of reasons for that, we don't have time to go into it, but one of the main reasons is is that if you've grown up with that much pain or if you've experienced that much pain, then you're gonna try to do whatever it takes to mitigate that pain. You're gonna do whatever it takes to cope with that pain. You're gonna do whatever it takes to give yourself back some power, some agency where you haven't had it. And one of the ways you might do that is by experiencing the thrill or the satisfaction of, of drug abuse and alcohol abuse. And just on a side note, we don't have really even time to say this, but just on a side note, like when you've been through a traumatic experience, your body releases cortisol, and it releases, we're going to get into that, it releases a lot of different hormones, but it also represses dopamine, the happy drug, right? And the things that drugs and, and alcohol mimic is dopamine. Certain drugs actually, rele- or actually release dopamine or, or, or block the brain from being able to dispose of it so it keeps you in a happy place, right? Of course people are gonna resort to those things to to medicate themselves, to try to make themselves okay, to try to cope, to try to survive, right? And what's important to understand about that is that is a normal response. It's a valid response. It's not a healthy response, not a good response. They don't think it's healthy. They don't think it's good. But it is valid, right? And I think that's important. So that we don't shame people that are literally just trying to keep their, their head above water sometimes. So we're going to look at the physiology and the psychology of trauma. We're going to get a little bit deeper into the science, and we have, we have time. So trauma starts as a physiological response to a threat, a threat to security, health, well-being, any part of the human whole. Trauma refers to the original event, and we often use the same word to refer to the effects, both short-term and long-term. Trauma physically affects our brain. If you don't hear anything else tonight, I need you to hear this. Trauma physically affects our brain, which means that trauma impacts our behavior as well as our way of thinking and processing information. People will grow up having experienced trauma or even as adults having experienced trauma and they will see their behavior change and they will have trouble processing and they'll have trouble explaining and they'll have trouble expressing emotions. They'll have trouble with all sorts of things that should be easy for them or things that were easy for them. And this is a physiological response to trauma. There is a phrase that we'll get into a little bit deeper, um, but when you, go through, when you go through trauma, you're... you're, you're I don't want to go there yet. We don't have time. All right. So let's look at the brain. This is a compelling, uh, compelling drawing of the brain. Um, but the, there's, for, for the sake of our purposes, we, we've got the prefrontal cortex, the hippocampus, and the amygdala. All right? And so I want you to take a mental picture of that. We can come back to it if we need to. But... So you can see that in your prefrontal cortex, you have your abstract thinking, your personality development, your behavior regulation, planning, problem solving. In your hippocampus, you have memory consolidation, navigation and spatial memory and learning. And then your amygdala, you have decision making, emotional memories, regulation of behavior and initiates the fear response. So we're going to talk a lot about the amygdala. But when you have... When you have experienced a trauma and when that trauma is unresolved, you tend to live in that red space. And that means that every other part of your brain becomes repressed. So all of those other things like abstract thinking, personality development, behavior regulation, those things stay in a state of arrested development. And so a lot of times when a child has had an intense trauma at a a developmental stage, you will see a lot of those traits in them stay, stay in a state of arrested development. All right, can everybody see that? I know it's a little small. So imagine you're walking along the Appalachian Trail, and you come around a corner, and there is a giant bear. Ah! Right? Hopefully you haven't just had a honey and peanut butter sandwich, right? Hopefully your breath is not all honey, right? Um, But you come around the corner, and there's a bear, and it's angry, and it's hungry, and it's looking at you, because it's just you and the bear. And your body will... Autonomically, before your brain can perceive that that is a bear, your body has already made a decision to run or to freeze, right? And that is what we call the fight or flight response. Um, don't fight the bear. Don't. I mean, I'm looking around this room, and there's a couple guys that, a couple gals too, that probably could take on a bear, but don't don't fight a bear. So our amygdala is automatically responding to the threat, right? And so what happens is it releases stress hormones to the HPA, which is the... my brain has just gone blank. Hypothalamus, the pituitary glands, and the adrenal glands, which will then release other hormones into the sympathetic neural system, which will then activate the fight-or-flight response. And we're going to get into a little deeper into the sympathetic nervous system and the next slide. But what's happening is, is your brain is releasing the initial stress hormones so that the HPA can make a decision, what am I doing next? It's going to shut down those higher functions over here. Your prefrontal cortex, your hippocampus, those are getting shut down. And it is going to automatically dump those hormones, the epinephrine, which is adrenaline, the, the norep, nore, norepinephrine, norepinephrine, which is noradrenaline, um, Cortisol and oxy, what? Oxytocin Oxytocin. and oxytocin and others, and so that is going to flood your um, sympathetic nervous system, and then you are going to act whichever way it perceives that it should act in that moment, whether that's to run or whether that's to fight. And we're going to look at some ways that that happens. The most important thing that we need to understand about this: this is all happening. Happening autonomically, right? Your body is reacting this way. You have not chosen to react this way. This is all happening without your permission. But this is the way that God made you. And you're wonderfully and fearfully made. And I'm glad that all of you are here. And if you've ever had a run-in with a bear, that's probably why you're here. It's because (laughs) your amygdala functioned properly, right? But the other parts of the, the brain shut down, Right? And if you, we're going to talk, in just a little bit, we're going to talk about traumatic triggers, like stuff that happens later on that brings you back to that event. But every time you have a traumatic trigger, those places shut down again, right? Oh, that's small. Okay. So needless to say, when your sympathetic nervous system is when all those hormones dump into it, things are going to happen. Your pupils are going to dilate, right? You're going to get focused. You want to be able to focus on what's the threat in front of you. You don't need to take in a bunch of light. You need to focus on what's in front of you. Your heart rate's going to go up, right? Your, your oxygen level's going to go up. You're going to have, um, what else is on here? <laughs> so small, I thought it was bigger than that. Uh, Your muscles are going to tense up, right? You're getting ready to fight or you're getting ready to run, right? And your body is just being flooded with adrenaline and flooded with cortisol. And that is a good thing because if you're going to fight a bear or if you're going to run from a bear, you need everything moving in one direction. You don't need your brain saying, but look at that beautiful flower. That's the one we came out here to see. Or, ooh, I wonder if those berries are poisonous. You don't need to think about anything else. Your body needs to be completely, your prefrontal cortex needs to mostly be offline, right? But the thing is, is that when that happens, you are in a fight or flight mode, right? And when you have, when you experience triggers that we're going to talk about, you can also go right back into that fight or flight modes, mode and you can freeze there and you can live in that place. And so you'll see people that have experienced great trauma and are having, and it's unresolved. A lot of times they may experience an elevated heart rate. They may experience the dilation of pupils. They may experience this dumping of hormones into their body. And when you have a bunch of hormones in your body and you don't have anything to do with them, it's going to cause you to get an upset stomach. And it's gonna, it can cause long-term um, effects on your body. It's toxic for those things to stay in your body. But if you are experiencing triggers from your previous trauma, then you're experiencing it just like it's happening again. And these things are happening all over again. So trauma response and damage involves a range of areas in the brain. And this is important because trauma can damage the brain. And trauma does, there's a phrase, um, Shelby and and Michael and I were sitting at the coffee shop and we were talking about this. Uh, There's a phrase, neurons that fire together, wire together right? And so, like, it's interesting. So, like, maybe you had a traumatic event, and you, you, you remember it fairly well or whatever, and then one day you're walking along, and there's a smell or there's a sound, and you go right back to that traumatic event. It's because in that moment where you had the traumatic event, that smell was present. That sound was present, and your neurons fired together the sensation of that smell, the sensation of that sound, and the trauma fired together, and they sort of wired together, right? And so a lot of therapy with trauma victims that have deeply embedded trauma is to create new neural pathways, to create new uh, connections in your mind between those familiar, maybe even uh, triggering smells and, and sounds. So the corpus callosum is the connection between the two hemispheres of your brain, your right and left brain, your logical thinking brain and your abstract creative brain. The limbic system is closely connected to the brainstem, and that's where the amygdala or the fear center is located. And the cerebral cortex is our thinking brain, including the prefrontal cortex. So the two halves of the brain are connected by the corpus callosum. And one of the things that happens when you're traumatized is that 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 bridge can be damaged. And when people experience really intense trauma or multiple traumas, a lot of times that, that, that can be damaged almost irreparably. And so you will see someone who have a completely different personality shift. That, you know, when we, when we, no matter how right-brained you are, no matter if you're a Michael Jeter or a Paige Jeter, like no matter how right-brained you are, uh, that was free, Michael. Um, but uh, you st- he still is a very logical person. Like you should hear him talking about geeking out about drums and and tech on drums and and, and recording music, like his brain is like thinking in in both sides at the same time, and it's a beautiful thing, right? But if you have experienced this damage to the corpus callosum, then there is not a lot of interaction between the two hemispheres of your brain, which can cause someone who was very right-brained to get locked into their left brain, or someone who's very left-brained to be locked into the right side. And it can be a complete personality shift after a major trauma. And I think that this is important. For many trauma survivors, the bridge is much smaller. In fact, the more dissociative, and we're gonna come back to that term, the more dissociative you are, the smaller the link between the two sides. The consequence is that most of us post-trauma either think too much or feel too much. Closely connected to the brainstem is the limbic system which can influence the basic functions govern uh, there such as breathing and heartbeats, Um, It's responsible for caring, bonding, empathy, and most importantly in relation to trauma, it contains the amygdala. But when the limbic system is damaged post-trauma, then you also can find people who were once caring and who once easily bonded and who once were empathetic to lose some of those qualities, some of those abilities. And some of that is just their body dissociating it. Some of it is just their brain protecting them um, going forward. But again, the reason why I'm saying these things is not to say this is the ways that you're broken, I'm saying this is a normal response to trauma, and I want it to be normalized because I don't want you to feel shame if you've experienced some of these things. Predominantly operating from the right brain, the amygdala has an incredibly important function to warn us of fear, we've already said that. But it also contains the memory of anything that has frightened us, and this includes trauma memories, in order to warn us if it might be about to happen again. So there's two places in your brain maybe more, but two important places in your brain that store, store memories. The amygdala um, and the hippocampus, right? The hippocampus stores long-term memories. It can store memories about you know things that hurt and whatever, but when it's a traumatic thing, it gets stored in your amygdala. If your amygdala is enlarged because you've experienced a major trauma and it's unresolved, or if you're experiencing massive triggers or post-traumatic stress from that, then you can become locked in the memories that are stored in your fear center. And you can begin to respond to everything around you from the fear center. And it can cause you to not be able to access the long-term memories that help you navigate life. And everything becomes urgent and everything gets locked into that moment. And you almost get locked into that fight or flight uh, freeze mentality. So the cerebral cortex is the outermost layer of the brain and it's what we call the thinking brain. When our brain perceives something scary or dangerous, this is happening before we react and we think. And that's so important because you will see someone who's experienced a trauma run out into traffic. Why would you do that? You've literally just been in a car accident and you somehow survived, and now you just ran out into traffic, right? They're not thinking about it. Literally, they're not processing things with their prefrontal cortex. They are living in their fear center in that moment. So I don't think we have, I don't think we really have time to do justice to this. So we're going to stop here and we're going to come back. Um, If you want to kill that slide, Adam, Um, the one thing I want to say about trauma triggers tonight is that a traumatic trigger can be as severe as the original trauma, that your body will perceive that trigger. The same way as the original danger. And so that may mean that six months after a car wreck that was extremely traumatic for you, that the sound of screeching tires literally puts you back in that moment. Your eyes dilate, your heart rate goes up, your pulse quickens, right? You start to sweat, your mouth dries out. You might even evacuate your bowels or wet yourself. Like literally, your body is back in fight or flight mode, right? Now think about if you've had, if you've had traumatic experience after traumatic experience after traumatic experience and you have a multitude of things that are triggering you, how that can affect you moment by moment, day, day by day. I don't want us to end... On a low note, I want us to end with an upward trajectory. We're gonna go into a time of worship. So remember the two things that I said I wanted us to focus on, that there is hope in Christ. He is the divine physician. You are wonderfully and fearfully made. God made your body this way to respond to trauma, to keep you alive, right? These are normal reactions to abnormal events. We were not meant to live in a world full of evil. We were meant to live in a garden. We were meant to walk in the cool of the day with the Lord himself, right? Where trauma is a word that is uninvented, right? And yet we live in a world that has fallen. We live in a world full of people that are selfish and that are harming other people. We live in a world full of pain and hurt and trauma. And our bodies are programmed to respond in a specific way. And if it's unresolved, our bodies will continue to respond in kind And I want you to not feel any shame tonight if you have been responding a certain way. I'm not saying that there are no repercussions for your behavior or your actions post-trauma. But what I am saying is you don't need shame heaped on top of you along with everything else you're going through. What you need is for the Lord to begin to heal the underlying, unresolved traumas. Amen? Amen.